Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. I finally got to the truth inside of me. I resolved it, that it really is who you are and how you conduct yourself, the integrity that you bring. And it is not at all what you look like or what physical issues you may have, especially the ones that are God-given that you don't choose. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, welcome to another episode of The Truth Prescription. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. David Frangioni, who is a drumming aficionado. But in addition to that, he had a whole lot of truth nuggets to share because of his journey and his life. Number one, his personal and professional, he combined them. But he talked about the concept of focusing on the inside and not on the outside. And what does that mean? So we all are given certain gifts, certain talents, and they need to be nurtured. And the only way to nurture them is to really focus on the things that we're passionate about, the things that we're good at, the things that we're strong at. Focusing on that will help us to grow and really be who we're supposed to be in this world versus focusing on the outside noise and the things that people are saying and trying to please this person and that person and wondering, do they like me or they don't like me? All of those things essentially just take energy away from the energy you could be using to further support yourself and further strengthen what you have on the inside. So he goes into his story about um, initially why he wasn't doing that and some of the things that helped him to do that. But just Focusing on the importance of that, I think, is a great lesson for today, especially with all the, uh, call it uh, outside noise, uh, social media and everything else that goes on that really pulls us away from focusing on the person that should be the real center of the universe, which is you. (laughs) And not in a selfish way, but in a way that supports, strengthens and loves who you are and what you're here to do on this planet. So that was his uh, personal and professional truth. We also talked about the concept of escapism and what it is. We talked about music studios and um, both current in the past and contemporary, what makes a good studio. And then we sort of finished up with the concept of how does one become the greatest at anything? What are the principles of greatness? We talked about that. And um, yeah, it was a really it was a really great episode. Um, Hope that you enjoy it. And um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Good people. Welcome back. Another episode of the Truth Prescription podcast. 
Today I am talking to a, I guess I'll call him a, a drumming aficionado, David Frangioni. How you doing, David? Great, Dr. G. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. And Dave, you're in, you live in Miami, correct? Yes. I'm from Boston. I live in Miami. I read Arlington, Mass. Is it Boston or what's Arlington? How far is Arlington, Mass from Boston? You know, just a few miles. A few miles, you know, okay. Miles, so really 10 miles or whatever. It's all greater Boston area. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have some roots there as well. Anyway, David, the reason I wanted to have him on, he's uh, going through a few things in his life, is now doing, doing extremely well, living his uh, best life and living a life of gusto. I always appreciate when people can support themselves through their art, and I think it's a beautiful thing. So David, as we talked about, grew up in, in the Boston, in greater Boston area, started playing drums at age two. Shortly thereafter, he was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, which is a sort of, it's an eye, essentially an eye tumor that young children get. And he went through that, that treatment, which I'm sure we'll get into, which I'm sure was not uh, an easy time for him. And then he started a audio tech consulting business at the age of 17. And, you know, going forward, he's worked with people like Aerosmith, Shakira, the Rolling Stones. He's founded a drum museum, which is kind of awesome. And last year, he put out the book Crash, the World's Greatest Drum Kits. So really excited to get into Dave's world. Dave, I think we can probably jump right into the truth prescription. Do you want to start with personal or professional? Uh, let's start with personal, because I think, I think that's the foundation. I think uh, yeah. whatever happens professionally, it, it still starts inside of each of us. So, and for me, personal was certainly a turning point. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so just you know, lead us down that path, tell us a truth story, take us with you on, on a journey about maybe something that you were ignoring or, or you were not aware of, that once you became aware of it or accepted it, that you were able to break through. Well, one moment that, that I think applies is uh, when I was two and diagnosed with retinoblastoma, as you, as you described, yeah. and the result of that was I had to remove my right eye, mm. right? So it wasn't just the tumor, but it was actually my eye. And, and so I was given a prosthetic, which is a removable prosthetic. And of course, I've been blind in my right eye ever since. And, and the blessing in that is I never knew, I've never known what it's like to see out of two eyes. So I, I didn't have to adjust to anything, right? So I just only know how to see out of my left eye. And as I was going through my life, you know, I really, whenever I watch Forrest Gump, I cry mm. because that movie is, is one of my favorite movies because there's so much that just reminds me of my life because at the beginning of my life, when my eye was removed and I was, and I'm two years old and I start to go through my early childhood, the surgeon, because the surgery is in the dark, when they're doing the eye removal, and this is 1969, yeah. he clipped a muscle under my lid that isn't normally clipped in this surgery. And the result of that was my lid was shut very far. So it was so obvious that I had one eye and that something was really wrong with my right eye. And so kids are, you know, so, so tough. Yeah. And, uh, and my neighborhood was kind of tough. It, w it wasn't, it wasn't a bad neighborhood, but it was all immigrants like myself and my parents, you know? And so everybody was, you know, blue collar and, and, uh, and just, you know, it was just kind of a rough and tumble environment. I think that going through the trauma of that, I had to really kind of put my head down and see myself within and not from the external mm. and not let the confidence lack that was so fragile at that time and was being tested to its max. Because, <laughs> you know, you got to remember, it's, it's all sides. When you, when you have that kind of issue, 
And a lot of people do. A lot of people have to go through this challenge. So I'm speaking especially to them, but to anybody who has a challenge, it doesn't have to be this one specifically, where your external and your internal are not the same. To the external at a glance, it's like, oh, he's weird. He's different. He's a pirate eye. He's a this, he's a that. But once somebody gets to know somebody inside, they can really decide what kind of person they are and if there is chemistry and if they want to be their friend or they want to go on a date or they want to do business or whatever. And so in my early years, you know, I really had to just kind of go through life seeing things as I wanted to see them. Kind of my own intended. (laughs) Well intended and and focused on passion. I didn't understand the truth of that. There was a breakthrough where as, as the years went on, what I was able to do physically as I got successful, as I was able to have a corrective surgery to get the lid higher. So okay. now it's less apparent to people. I won't say that you can't tell, right. uh, but I, you know, I don't get much of a response negatively towards my, my looks. And so <laughs> that, that's kind of been evolved. But what's more important than that is that that happened. So now I'm in my like early 20s okay. and, I've, and I've got success. I've started, I've been working with Aerosmith and, and other artists. I'm a music technologist. I've I've gone from being a drummer full time in my early 12, 13, 14, 15, like those years while I'm in school, I'm drumming all the time. My goal is I'm going to be the world's greatest drummer. Now, can you imagine I'm on a stage? I'm not just existing in my neighborhood and at my school and with the kids, but I actually put myself on a stage drumming. And it was really at the time I didn't realize how gutsy it was. Because again, I'm in Forrest Gump mode without realizing. <laughs> and so I, I'm up on the stage. Now I'm really putting myself out there because not only am I putting my playing on the line, but everybody can see the one I get. Right. Because I put no energy inside of me into that issue and didn't feed it. Right. There's that great saying, what you feed grows, what you starve dies. So I was starving the whole idea that there was anything wrong with me. Yeah. And my parents helped nurture that quite a bit. I mean, we didn't have a handicapped sign for the car. And like, like they were very conscious of like, you're a normal kid. You have one eye, you have to be careful. You have to take more caution than other kids because you only have one left, right? So don't, don't be stupid. But as far as who you are and how you show up in the world, you know, you're as good as anybody else. So I got up there on the stage, 12, 13 years old, played hundreds of gigs by the time I was wow. 17, 18 years old, and really had my sights set, studied with some great drummers, practiced hard, went to New England Conservatory on a scholarship, was really determined, like, I'm going to make my mark in drumming. But I found technology and ended up falling in love with technology as much as I had music and drumming. And I became a music technologist doing right. MIDI rigs and when I was working with Aerosmith, that was like a one-man show there. So Stephen and Joe would be working in the studio, and I would be running all the controls, doing the programming, putting the studios together, whatever they needed, whatever it was that was technological, which was a lot at that time. Yeah, I was the go-to guy, and then that evolved to many other artists. And you mentioned some of them, and working with a Beatle, with Ringo Starr for, wow. for quite some time, and just dreams come true. Yeah, in all of this, I finally got to the truth inside of me, I resolved it, that it really is who you are and how you conduct yourself, the integrity that you bring. And it is not at all what you look like or what physical issues you may have, especially the ones that are God given that you don't choose. And because of that, I've never done a drug, never had a drink, never had a puff of a cigarette. Mm. So in the environment of playing clubs when I'm 13 and I'm standing on wine cases to change my into stage clothes, yeah. 
these are all the benefits of this truth. Okay. Right. So as these truths are coming to me, as I'm realizing both consciously and subconsciously, it's just the breakthroughs are just unbelievable. Because yeah. think about as I'm in my teens, I'm watching the effects without realizing that I'm doing this right. I'm watching the effects of, of what alcohol and drugs and smoking are doing to not only my bandmates, but all the patrons in all these clubs I'm sure. playing. Sure. And a truth comes out of it. Like, and my parents were very supportive of this, like, you know, live a clean life, be thankful for the life you've been given and don't make choices to destroy that. Yeah. And that stuck with me. And, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody else, whether they're in the music business with me or not, that hasn't taken a puff of a cigarette or a sip of a drink or a puff of a joint or, or tried, you know, a drug or something. I mean, right. at least one of those somebody's done, right. but I've never done any of it. So that's, that was a huge truth breakthrough as I went on. And I was so blessed to have so much music experience at some, such a young age, booking the bands myself, leading yeah. the bands, putting the bands together. Yeah. I'm 15 years old, 16 years old. I'm, I'm not realizing that I'm learning business. So all of this experience that I was able to gain early on, the, the, the point of all of this is that I went for it. And that I really, I put everything on the line. And you, you, know, you got to choose faith over fear. It's a great saying, but I was living it. You got to sure. live that. That's a really important thing because it's so easy to fall into the fears. And the truths just kept coming and coming. And, and another huge truth that was that came out of all the band years was that there were two huge ones. They were both kind of similar. One I got from playing in the bands and the other I got from studying with great drummers, okay. world famous drummers that I sought out as teachers. They, they, they offered lessons, but I sought them out to ask them, can I be a student of yours? So I got their wisdom of being a professional, world-famous drummer for 50 years, or however many years they had been doing it. And I got the wisdom of being in the bands, and the outcome was very similar, which is if I keep pursuing music as a musician in a band as my living, which is how I saw it for so many years, I am going to be, really, it's going to be up to whether the lead singer stays, whether the right. guitarist doesn't have a meltdown. Sure whether everybody agrees on the style we're doing, whether we can live with each other on the road. Like I was able to determine those things so early. And I think that's such a huge, huge, I mean, I'll call it luck, but I'll call it a blessing. And so I, I really, in my heart and soul, wanted to do something with all of this passion that I had, but never saw technology coming. And then all of a sudden in my pursuit of being a better drummer and looking for drum technology solutions, mm -hmm. I realized that I love technology in music, especially and specifically as much or more than I love to drum. And that became my career, my life's calling. And here we are. And now, as you mentioned, we've got all of these different elements between being publisher, a modern drummer, and still playing the drums very actively and taking all I've learned as a drummer, programming libraries and building studios. And all of these things have really kind of been put together in a very unique way from realizing that truth and overcoming, you know, the internal challenges sure. of being ridiculed and being judged and trying to kind of fit in. Yeah, it's got to be hard. You know, when I listen to you talk, I almost I think about the phrase, the gift and the curse, right? Because what happened to you, clearly it was, it was difficult. It was a tough time, right? It was a challenge. And not only just having the actual diagnosis and the surgery, but the aftermath. And you and your parents made a choice at that point, because there's two tracks you could have gone down. You could have gone down the victim track where, hey, listen, this thing has happened to me. Oh, woe is me. People are making fun of me. I'm just going to crawl under a rock and, you know, I'll go be a library clerk and, you know, no, the world will never see me. Not that there's anything wrong with a library clerk, but if, you're, if your passion and your heart is telling you, I need to be out there, I need to be on stage, I need to be an artist, I need to be making music, 
then the library clerk for you would not be in line with, with your soul's purpose, right? So you, you could have gone that path, but you went the other path. And so I just think it's really great. Kudos to your parents, because clearly at age two and three, you don't really have the internal gusto to, you know, really fight the fight alone. And I think it, it sounds like their support helped you to be strong. Then obviously, as you grew, uh, you were able to fight those battles alone. But that's a great truth. Essentially, what you're saying is focusing on your internal strengths, not other people's external perceptions. Exactly. The gift and the curse. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, you know, I've never heard that. And that is so brilliant. Mm. The gift and the curse, because that's exactly what the trauma of losing the eye ended up being. Yeah. And you're right. We didn't, my parents were very deliberate in not choosing victim. And they would say that they would use those words. You are not a victim. I played ice hockey at eight, nine years old, when I was trying to figure out, do I want to do sports? Do I want to do music? Because I love both. Yeah. I was playing ice hockey. When I look back, and as I've gotten older and wiser, and and not in the moment, but now able to reflect on all of those moments, I can't believe what they did for me. <laughs> I can't believe how supportive and how much they let me live the courage that they were asking me to have. Yeah. And that was the difference, right? You can say a lot of words, but when you're actually out on the ice skating rink, and you're going up and down and some six foot kid who's outgrown everybody else <laughs> comes and hits you from your blind side and knocks you halfway across the ice in the air. Yeah. Like that's when you start realizing like, okay, I, now I see why they said I should be really careful on ice. Right. Like that's a big difference between somebody just saying, be careful. I think those lessons and the way that they nurtured and the way that they supported not being a victim were as important as the words. And I think that's a, that's my point to share with everyone listening is that it's so important within whatever comfort zone you have, it's so important to let yourself or the people that you're nurturing and love have experiential moments. Yeah. My parents had a pretty wide, they were always right there to catch me, but they had a pretty wide set of boundaries on what they let me do to really experience life, yeah. kind of walk the walk. But not everybody's going to have that. Some people who have a lot more conservative approach, some people even less conservative than my parents. Sure. But whatever it is, it's important to do that because words only will not resonate. They will not go as deep into your core and actually make transformational differences as I realize now that they did. That's some, some extra, extra truth prescription for the parents listening. <laughs> and Dr. G's, a lot of prescriptions coming today. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's, let's um, jump into a few questions. You describe yourself as an escapism artist. So just talk a little bit about what is escapism and you know, why do people sort of have a negative, negative things to say about it? Because escapism tends to take a form that's usually not good for people's lives, right? So what is the first thing everyone thinks of when you think of, a, you know, an escape from reality? Drugs. Drugs, yeah. exactly. So that's the first thing. And then, of course, it shows up in many different forms. People gamble, they're gambling, you know, usually the word addict is, is within the same context as what they're doing to escape. Although it can be a casual escape as well that uses drugs or other other things to, to you know kind of lose yourself so my view is that when i look at my life and i look at all the different things that i've done you mentioned authoring crash the world's greatest drum kits which in that book are all the drum kits that are in the drum museum that i have as part of my foundation certainly that collection that museum for all the good that it does and helping kids and doing master classes and et cetera, et cetera for the, the betterment of uh, healthy outlets for youth it's all about escape 
but it's healthy outlets. Yeah. In a nutshell, my view of escapism is healthy outlets. What have I done to practice that? I read. I love home theater, mm. and then watching the movies inside of it. Yeah, especially for author books. Working in the studio when I work on my own music, drumming, of course, collecting. So I have three books published. One is Crash. Two others are called Clint Eastwood Icon and Clint Eastwood Icon Revised and Expanded Edition. Mm. They are the essential film art collection of Clint Eastwood movie posters and memorabilia from his entire film career. And we have up and through 2009 was the first edition. Then we did a revised and expanded through 2018. And all of that's a collection. What, well, what are collectors really doing? They're escaping. They're either – if you a lot of them will say, well, I'm reliving. You know, I collect – you know, uh, Babe Ruth baseball memorabilia because it's a good investment. And I remember him when I was a kid, you know, an older gentleman would say that, oh my, or I remember my grandfather, you know, loved Babe Ruth, whatever. But it's still a form of escape, even if it's reliving memories, et cetera. So I believe in healthy outlets and being an escapism artist, it, really it's the professional side of all the things that I do. I make a living working in the music business, yeah. building home theaters and home automation systems, helping people with collections, mm. consulting on their careers, working on drum libraries, mm. running a drum magazine so people can better their drumming you know, inspiration and what they're calling what the drums is. Everything from hobbyists to, to you know, world-famous pros read Modern Drummer. All of those things are escapes. Okay. No, that's nice. It's a positive slant on something that you know, can be perceived as negative. But yeah, I agree with you. If you think about it, you know, most creative pursuits. I mean, if you think about just songwriting, you're escaping. You're not in. I mean, like, you know, we talked earlier about my experience with music production and your experience. You go into a different zone. You're not on this plane when you're coming up with melodies and trying to figure out, you know, where should the kick drum go? Where should I put this snare? You know, what what instrument should I use for this melody line? And actually, that that really leads to my my next question. A lot of producers and and we had talked earlier about how. You know, even me and my experience with music production, as a matter of fact, the, the soundtrack to the intro music that I did for this, I started with the drum. But that was the first thing I laid down. And when you talk to a lot of, you know, hip hop, R&B, contemporary producers, they all talk about how they usually start, you know, Timbaland talked about this recently with their drum track, whatever that is. You know, it could just be a kick in the snare and I and that's it. And then they lay everything else around it. Why do you think the drum is so important? Why is it so central to music? Well, I think that uh, it's the, you know, it's the heartbeat of, of our lives. And, and you look at drumming and there's so many aspects of it from Africa, drums are, and in India too, drums are, they, they actually communicate, you know, right. you, you like you play a certain pattern and someone hears it a mile away and plays a pattern back and there's actually a conversation. I mean, there's actually translations and words and meaning to it beyond just the rhythms and the feelings. Yeah. So you look at like that extreme and then you look at the other extreme where they can just be a lot of fun to watch or play. Yeah. And then everything in between, I think drums really are the heartbeat of, of life. And people love to sing in the shower, but more people like to drum on the dashboard. And I, <laughs> but, uh, I think it's inside of us. I think drumming is just connects with people in a way that because you can play a pattern, you can sing a pattern, you can hear a pattern. And anybody, you know, a little baby can literally go... You know, you can, it's just, it's so tribal and so inside of us. It's yeah. so real and human. There's no other instrument other than the voice yeah. that is that connected to who we are and what we are inside. 
I don't know this to be true. You may, I, I feel sort of like the drum was probably the first human, one of the first human instruments like that mm -hmm. was that was made and created. Yes. So it points to right. your tribal, I think, you know, if you believe in past lives and this type of thing, that there's something about that sound that we really connect with on a really, really deep, deep, you know, like level, like, you know, it, it surpasses this time, you know, th these times. So. Oh, yeah. The history of it's incredible. And uh, the meaning of it, of course, I'm biased because the drums are in my blood and in my soul. But I really feel that, you know, I've met so many people that whether they're drummers or not, love the drums. Did you have any other musicians in your family? My brother was three years older than me. He's a doctor, okay. uh, you know, right? <laughs> right. Talk One of those guys, guys, yeah. Talk about extremes. But he played all kinds of different instruments. But really, no, I mean, I get asked that a lot because yeah. when you look at my life and career, it would make sense that somewhere in the family, you know, history, there, there were musicians. Uh, but I'm not aware of who they are if they were in my family tree. Okay. Part of what you do is, do and have done is you, know, you do home automation you've also built studios for a lot of you know any musicians listening or even people that want to do a um, you know do do their own podcast what makes a a good studio we just actually opened a podcast studio in the Flatiron district uh, metro podcast studio and we've got you know we've got really good preamps we've got really good mic like broadcast quality mics the uh electro voice re20 we have two of those you know we've got some uh some decent, I don't know if you know, black line uh, preamps. So pretty, pretty top quality equipment, but sort of in your world and recording for podcasts is way different than you, when you're recording a band and, you know, requ requires a different level of technology, but what makes a good studio for you? Certainly the application, as you described, determines, you know, what the specifics will be, mm -hmm. but the studio, there, there's multiple elements to every studio, whether it's a single room, which mm -hmm. typically a podcast would only really need to be a control room, sure. whereas in a more recording-centric environment where you are having live bands, musicians, etc., you would want and need an additional room or two to do actual instrument recording, sure. and you would need isolation. So to answer your question specifically, of course, there are nuances and depending on what the applications are, but I start with you need isolation from the outside world. The world needs isolation from you. Mm. So that's your outside layer. Nice. And then you also have an inside layer to that. And then you have an additional inside layer, which is the sound of the room to you. Okay. And those are different technical considerations for how this room is going to come together. Sure. Then once you have a nice shell where it's an empty room, you don't hear the outside world. They don't hear you. When you're in the empty room, it sounds very natural, which becomes inspiring and mm. musical sounding to the ear. So mm. the human brain is perceiving this as, oh, this is a nice creative space and it sounds really good. But there's a lot that went into making it sound really good. <laughs> right. And of course, because we've done proper isolation, the outside world, the trucks coming by and people you know, walking and whatever, you don't hear any of that. So the environment's extremely creative. And then inside of that, I work on what all the technology needs will be and how that will be integrated. And that, of course, involves a good user interface. It involves the right monitors, the right console, the right furniture. The, you know, there's so many layers and elements to it, all the wiring. Yeah. And then when it's finished, you have a brilliant creative space that matches your needs that, um, you know, is inspiring and lasts for a long time. Yeah. And I want to also add that I've just become involved with a company that's building modular studios and it's a real breakthrough. And you might think, well, what's modular studio? It's essentially a Lego set of a studio. Wow. So a studio could take six months from design to finish. When you go to install it, oftentimes 
the work on site's very dirty with, you know, a lot of glue and hammering and drilling. And, you know, it's just it's a construction site in a yeah. lot of cases. These are finished panels and essentially a studio that a guy in a three-piece suit with a couple of helpers could show up and in 12 hours, the empty space you're standing in is a finished studio. Wow. What's the name of the company? Give them a shout out. Uh, well, it's it's Modular Studios. Is that they're just coming online now? So okay. I don't know exactly what we're even going to call it. It's, but we're working on it for two years. Wow! And it's but it's Modular Studios, and I will get you the info later as as it all evolves. There'll be a promo video and sure. a proper name and all of that. And but it's really going to change the industry. I oh, think. that's awesome! You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. It, it leads me really to my next question, which is about just sort of the laptop-based studios you know, how that's affected the economics of the traditional studios. I mean, here in New York, there's been so many studios that have just closed down, like that have been open for 20, 30 years. Prentice Studio, Electric Lady, there's Chung King, Puff Dad, Daddy's House Studio. I mean, there's all these studios that have closed and it's because, you know, you got kids with a laptop and Fruity Loops, you know, making uh, <laughs> making hits like that, uh, that what was that yeah. Little Nas X song? Yeah. Like, he, he actually bought that off the internet, actually. But, you know, there, there are all of these stories where you hear, yeah, I did this on my, my computer. And then, you know, they get, you know, 30,000 likes and then it's on the radio and then there's a video and then they're making millions of dollars doing shows and Grammys, you know. <laughs> it's amazing, right? It's a different time now. Well, you're right. And, and there's no question that the commercial studio world has changed dramatically, yeah. as you described perfectly. Yeah. It's just as simple as it's just a huge transition. I mean, look, the typewriter business was a great business in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Uh, not so great today. So, you know, commercial studios still have their place. They'll always be needed. Not everybody wants to work out of their house. Yeah. You know, I think we're always going to have commercial studios, thank God, because they, they're so, there's so many legendary studios. I was just at Ringo Starr's birthday party, which they did at Capitol Records. And, you're, and you're, I was in the studio. You know, of course, they have the multiple control rooms with the multiple recording areas and the way it's all designed. The history there, like you never want to see that do anything but just grow. You know, like just it's got to stay where it is and get better because you certainly never want to see it go away. There's so much history and so much legend. So we don't want to ever lose that. And we don't ever want to lose the functionality that commercial studios bring us. But what we can do in the home has changed dramatically, has grown. I think that working just off of a laptop without the environment we described earlier of a proper studio environment, I think, you know, that's the extreme. I, yeah. I don't suggest it, but I mean, look, music and music production and creation is whatever works for you. Yeah. There's no, you have to do it this way, right or wrong kind of thing. It's every, it's individual to everybody. Yeah. Some people will want to do it, what I'd call the right way, which is have a proper space. When you walk in, you're creating and you're going. Yeah. Some people are limited by budgets. They can't do that. So they do the best that they can. But the equipment has certainly gotten to the point where you got a lot of amazing options without having to go to a commercial studio, which you in the past did have to go to. Those options didn't exist. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think I'd like to see people take their environment more seriously hmm. and see what the outcome of that would be. Sure. Because if you only know I'm working in my bedroom and I know I got some great songs going and some great things happening, then you have, you don't even realize what's possible. Sure. You haven't taken that next step to say, well, what if I go into even a more inspiring space? What if I go to a place with less distractions? And for a lot of people, that's going to be better. Some people, you change that environment and it gets worse, right? Because the creative <laughs> process is so intrinsic. But for most people, it gets better. You know, I think we're 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 on a freight train of growth and evolution when it comes to music technology. And um, that's really what it is. 
Yeah, that that uh that modular studio concept sounds really um cutting edge and innovative. It is. It's breakthrough, man. Yeah. Dr. G, it's gonna change how people, artists, creative types are able to create. Yeah. And you think about the scalability of it. Think about if a Netflix needs 10 more production content rooms, mm. you know, you just literally put them up in a week and they've got 10 production suites, wow. add equipment, wiring, and you're done. Yeah. It's very wide. It's not just artist studios, which clearly this is targeted for, yeah. but it's production suites. It's, it's places where you need proper sound. Wow. It could be a trading floor. Sure. You, have some, you could have a, you know, where they need a space to go in and meditate. Ah. They need a space to go in and, and, you know, do voiceovers. I sure. mean, there's a million applications where people need proper, what I'll call spaces. And that's what really Modular Studios is. It's creating world-class spaces easily, quickly, and cost-effectively. Yeah. Okay. My last question for you. Earlier in the interview, you, you gave us a little tidbit into your process. You said your goal was to become the world's greatest drummer, right? Mm-hmm. That, was, that was your driving that force. Then I got real. <laughs> then, I, then I saw Dave Weckl. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think there's something to be said about that mindset. In your opinion, how, do you, how does one become the world's greatest anything? If we were to take this, you would just spread it out and say, you know, I want to be the world's greatest. I mean, I think starting with that mindset is extremely important because it drives you further than you think you can go. Whether yes. or not you ever achieve that, you know, who, who, who will know? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, but setting that intention and that mindset is important. That matters. Yes, that matters 100%. What do you think it takes to be the world's greatest anything? I love the question because it really defines the the 30,000 foot view of my life, which mm. is just taking the drive and refining it and putting a plan around it. So I think that, that in no particular order, I think that you've really, first of all, the 10,000 hour rule is yeah. absolutely right. Tell people what the 10,000 hour rule is if they don't know. It's that in order to master anything, you need a minimum of 10,000 hours doing it. That is absolutely true. There's no substitute. You can't, you know, people, I want to be the world's greatest swimmer. Well, at some point, put the book down. Don't look at the chalkboard and jump in the water. <laughs> and when you get there, work in the water for 10,000 hours swimming. Yeah. So I think that that's really important. And that's, and I'm saying these things, I'm sharing them with you, Dr. G, and the listeners, because I've actually done them. So these are not concepts that I'm exploring or thinking about. This is how I've lived my life. So I know what it, I know what it works. Sure. Um, it's produced results. So 10,000 hours, hard work. People define hard work so differently. I see people after six hours working in a day, they're like, whew, that was a tough day. <laughs> um, you know, hard work for me is another extreme, but I put a lot of hard work in. I've worked mostly seven day weeks for most of my career, mm. very little downtime. I don't prescribe that, by the way, because it's a little out of balance, but it's worked for me. And regardless of what your definition is, you got to have hard work, consistency. I think if you want to be great at something, I think that don't rest on your laurels. I remember at Audio One how proud I was that all the hard work was paying off year after year. And I used to say to the team, guys, let's look at the last six years. Every one of these years, we have served the biggest celebrity in the world at that time. Mm. Wow. And we look back, we're like, wow, like when Ricky Martin, Martin the biggest star in the world, like literally couldn't walk down the street for three steps, 99, 2000. We were working with them, mm. you know, when the Beckhams came to America and they, they're literally, it was like the Beatles landing, you know, in New York sure. for in their time, right. It was 2007, you know, CNN was covering their, the plane landing all the way. <laughs> we were working with them and we could go on and on and on. The point is that, you know, it was something to look at, like, this is what's possible. Yeah. But for me, 
it wasn't just we worked with this amazing artist this year. It was we did it for 15 straight years. Right. Now I know we have a formula that works. Sure. And that's how I think you get on the path to greatness because I don't think greatness is, is a moment. I think greatness is, is a life. It's a nice phrase to end, end this off with. All right, let's, let's jump into uh, yes or BS. And normally I have like eight or nine of them, but for you, for whatever reason, I just have one. I create them very organically and, you know, I don't force anything. And um, for, the, for you, I have, I have one. So here we go. Number one and the only one. So I'm going to make a statement and you will say yes or BS. And then you can expound on why you, you know, you agree or disagree. The drummer is more important than the kit. Yes. Oh, man, that's like, uh, I have a saying that I've said for as long as I can remember that it's the archer and not the arrow. Okay. I have said that a million times. Okay. Because in every aspect of every lane of my career, mm -hmm. there are tools and there are the artisans that utilize those tools. Yeah. And so often people get wrapped up in the tool. And they love to say, oh, I lost that race because of my car. I lost that, I, I lost that gig because he, he had a better console, yeah. you know, and, or I didn't, get the, the, I didn't make the audition because my symbols, you know, weren't as good as his. Mm. It's all about the playing. It's all about the drummer. I remember a great story that Ozzy Osbourne told me. He said he showed up at John Bonham, the drummer from the late drummer from Led Zeppelin, showed up at his house one day, and he wanted to hear – a drum, he got Jason Bonham, John's son, who was yeah. very, very young at the time, yeah. got him a little toy drum kit. And if everybody knows the Led Zeppelin sound, it's that big, just this big, incredible, full, rich sound. Yeah. Defines rock drumming sound, by the way. It's iconic. So Ozzy gets Jason a little toy drum kit and uh, goes to the house to, wants to see him, hear him play it and watch him play it. Yeah. Gets to the house, knocks on the door. Doors unlocked, goes in. Here's John playing that Led Zeppelin. He's practicing in right. his house somewhere in the big mansion. And he, he hears him, Led Zeppelin. And he hears it and he's walking through the halls trying to find it. And, he, and he's like, you know, can't wait to get John off the drum set and bring the toy set in. He goes in and John's playing the toy set. Wow. And he's like, wow. It hit Ozzy. This sound is not because of Ludwig or Slingerland or Tom or these great brands, although that always is a factor. This sound is about John Bonham. Yeah. He can literally play any drums and they sound like Led Zeppelin. And so it really truly is as extreme as an example that one is. It's over and over and over. I see that it really is the archer and not the arrow. And I think what's so profoundly important about that lesson is that it gives us the personal responsibility that's needed to achieve. Like at Audio One, for instance, you know, we have a, a large team of technicians, right? And of guys that have to go out and scale what I have built and what I have done in my career. And so each one of them is going to meet challenges similar to what I've met in my career. And if they don't have the mindset that, you know what? Okay. I, I don't have the exact wire cutter I need right now or, the, or the, the exact computer program that I'd like to have this moment, but I know another way. I will overcome. Mm -hmm. I will find a solution. I will bypass. I will adapt. I will, I will substitute. I'll, like, there's so many ways forward. But when you put all the emphasis on the tool, 
and not the trade, sure. then you just immediately go, oh, it needs a number nine, this or that. Okay, well, I'll come back tomorrow. And that whole mindset permutates everything that we do and how successful we are and what kind of greatness we can bring to the world. Right. So it's a huge, huge concept. It's not just as simple as, as what we say, like, okay, it's the drummer and not the kid. Yeah. What that really means is that it's always on you and never on the circumstances, right. the tools, the drums, the tuning, the setup. I've been asked to sit in places where somebody says, oh, come down today and sit in with and show the kids this or that. And I show up and the drum kit is a mess. There's hi-hats way over here and floor toms way over there. And I'm just like, I just put it together as fast as I can, get as close as I can. Right. And then no excuses. Go for it. Right. I go for it. And you make it work and you play it and you kill it. Yeah. Yeah. Got to be a leader. That's the thing. Got to be a leader. Yep. No excuses. Make it happen. I was reading something this morning about that. Just um, always taking 100% full responsibility for everything, regardless, even if it was, quote unquote, someone else's fault. Awesome. Awesome. So, Dave, I appreciate you coming on. This has been great. A lot of insights, a lot of nuggets. I think the listeners got a nice little, uh, little dose of the uh, truth prescription today. <laughs> Thank you. No, the honor's all mine, Dr. G. I, I love what you're doing on this show. Thank you. I love what we're sharing with people. There's a lot that we talked about today, and I hope. The listeners will go back, listen a couple of times and take right. a couple of nuggets that'll help them on their path and their journey. Absolutely. How can the people get in contact with you, learn more about what you're doing, learn about your books, that kind of thing? At David Frangioni is my handle and davidjfrangioni.com is my website. Audio hyphen O-N-E, audio dash one, all spelled out, dot com is Audio One's website. And with all of that, you know, you can see everything that's going on. And, you know, I love working with new clients. I love working with people that are inspired and want to do great things. Yeah. That's really one of the things that I've made an important element of being the escapism artist is I pick and choose the projects so that I know that I'm working on projects that are compatible, Yeah. right? Because some people define home theater as a 65 inch flat screen with a sound bar and there's nothing <laughs> wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, right? right? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But my vision of home theater and the people who I work with who have a vision of home theater are, is to take a, a room, a space, and literally create a theater environment that you can't even get in a commercial theater. It's right. so enveloping and right. so inspiring. And, rich. Yeah. and that's a whole nother game, right? Yeah. So it's really just about aligning goals and visions and, uh, and serving the people that, you know, have a, a need for what your escapism work is. And it's, it's been an amazing journey, man. Yeah, awesome. All right. So that's David Frangioni. That's F-R-A-N-G-I-O-N-I. You can look him up on all the uh, platforms he just mentioned. David, I really appreciate your time. Thanks again. And I will sign off as I always say, the truth will set you free if you let it.